Father, we acknowledge your presence in this place. We count it a great privilege to take our Bibles and to receive a word from you. Father, encourage us and strengthen us. Use this time to build us up in our faith and to give us a greater understanding of who you are and your great character and how we are to live as your children. Strengthen your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you who are younger might not know who Will Rogers was. He was a cowboy, a real cowboy, and he was born in 1879, and he died in 1935. So he's an old guy, um, and he was a real cowboy, and I always liked cowboys. But Will Rogers is also known because uh, he is known for his pithy sayings. He was a humorist. You might think of him today as a comedian. Um, He was a good speaker, and he's known for lots of quotes and quips that a lot of them are sort of like proverbs even, or axioms of truth. Let me give you an example. Um, Because he was a cowboy, it influenced his thinking, and some of the things that Will Rogers would say went like this. He would say, um, don't squat with your spurs on, you know? Uh, Another thing he'd say was, um, letting the cat out of the bag is a whole lot easier than putting it back in. So that's what I mean by a proverb. It's true, but there's some... Some truth there to be applied to life. Will Rogers is credited with saying, if you get to thinking that you're a person of some influence, try ordering someone else's dog around. (laughs) Never kick a cow chip on a hot day. He said, um, if you find yourself in a hole, the first thing to do is to stop digging. Right? Makes good sense. Never slap a man who's chewing tobacco, he said. And he said, the quickest way to double your money, the quickest way to double your money is fold it in half and put it back in your pocket. And uh, not, some, not bad advice. And Will Rogers finally said this. He said, never miss a good chance to shut up. I was thinking about that. That's a lot what our Exodus series is. I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20 for us to sit still and to be quiet And to hear what God has to say to us. We laid a a groundwork last week as we entered our Ten Commandments series. For those of you that are new now, we'll plan to be in the Ten Commandments for about the next uh, 10 or 11 more weeks as we study God's Word together. And we pointed out that this is so significant. How Moses recorded this in Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, where he said... That God has spoken. That's reason enough for our study right there. God has spoken. Let's us shut up and listen. Right? We live in a noisy world. We live in a world filled with commentators. Everybody's blogging. Everybody's giving out their opinion. Everybody has a word. Let's be quiet as a church, as a people. And let's think and let's listen. Let's hear what God has to say to us. We reminded ourselves that in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, that uh, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him, the fear of God, may be before you, that you may not sin. That's the other part of our reason for our study, is to remind ourselves of the convicting power of the law of God. 
The psalmist said that he loved the law of God and that he delighted in the law of God. The law of God opens our eyes to so much truth and reality about what we're really like. And we're to to be instilled with the reality of who God is and to have a renewed awe and fear of God through our study of his law. This is what I expect, God says. This is how I want you to live. This flows and springs from my own holy character. The second part of Exodus 20.20 says, And so that... That you will not sin. And it's a call for righteous living, this study of the law of God is. So you should have a copy of the Ten Commandments nearby, one of our goals. I um, mean, look around on the chairs nearby. If not, find one on your way out, stick it in your Bible, and keep this close so that every week we can pull it out because as a church, we're going to memorize the Ten Commandments together. And today, our study is on the first two. We're going to cover uh, the first two. We may revisit the second one a little bit next week. There should be some screens, um, guys, back there. I don't know what's happening. But um, look at your card, and um, let's say the first two commandments together, all right? It's, you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. And then the second command you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. We're giving this card out so that we'll unify them with all the different translations so that we have a concise ten-word statement from God. That's what Decalogue means. Remember, Deca is ten. Log means word. God has spoken ten words to us that he really wants us to hear. Let's repeat the first and second command together. Ready? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. All right, well, you keep those handy. Don't forget my challenge to our junior high and high school young people is to take notes. I think that this is a valuable series for young people. As we live in a world that uh, has lost its moorings and, and it's an amoral, immoral world in which we live where uh, everyone just does what's right in their own eyes. And I want to challenge our young people to hear what God has to say to them specifically and how this can be foundational to the rest of your life. So if you'll take notes, if you're in 7th through 12th grade and you'll take notes, 9 out of 10 or 12 of these messages, however many there end up being, if you'll show me at least nine sermon outlines that you take, and I can recognize it, that it's something I pretty much preached, um, you'll get a free Teen Week t-shirt when Teen Week comes, okay? You get a free t-shirt, all right? And, um, and then if you're younger than junior high and you want to take notes, and if you can write whatever age-appropriate notes that you can take, and as long as you can write, um, take notes, show them to me. Boys and girls are showing them to me as they leave. If you'll take five sermon Sunday notes, Sundays of notes, uh, you'll get a free day camp t-shirt, okay? you get a free day camp t-shirt. We are unashamedly trying to motivate our young people extrinsically, as we said last week. And then all of us have to memorize the Ten Commandments, the adults... Um, You should take notes too. You should be um, intrinsically motivated. I was thinking, what can we do for the adults? And I thought, maybe when the offering plates go around, if you take notes that day, you could take a dollar out of the offering. But I thought, (laughs) that was probably a really bad idea. I I didn't mean it. Um, I was just thinking, what would motivate you? And you know you would do anything for money, wouldn't you? And uh, so take notes, take it in, think, ponder. And let's learn together. Let's be quiet before the Lord and let's learn. Let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20. Let's read verses 1 through 6 as our text this morning. And then let's dig in and see what God has to say to us today. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What an interesting and challenging way to begin this Decalogue, this ten words. God is speaking to us and he has specific things to say. I want us to hear three things that God has to say out of these first two commandments as we get into our sermon series. The first one is this. I want you to see, first of all, that God, speaking to us, is making a statement of cultural relevance. Number one, God is making a statement in the first commandment of cultural relevance. The first and second commandments. Let's put it in context. Let's remind ourselves of when Moses received this word. Remember the awesome setting. Remember there before Mount Sinai, there on the plain of Sinai in front of the mount. It's clouded over. It's, uh, the Bible tells us that the earth was shaking, that there was lightning and fire and smoke, that it was an awesome setting. The, the, Jew, the Israelite people are there gathered at the foot of the mountain. They're trembling in fear. God specifically sends Moses down the mountain to remind them, don't even touch the mountain. God's not kidding today. We joke around about God. We have a relaxed attitude about God. Let me tell you, God was not kidding. He said, tell them, go down and tell them not to even touch the mountain. Don't even try to come up here to me. I'm a holy God. They will die. Any even animals would die if they touched the mountain. It was an awesome setting. Moses said, but God, I already told him. He said, go down and tell him again. And then come back with your brother Aaron. And then God gave him the Decalogue. Here's this setting. Remember this happened three months, three moons, three months after Pharaoh had released them out of Egypt. And so let's put this into cultural context. Where have the Israelites been living? How is it that this call for monotheism, that's what commandment number one is, a call for monotheism. He said, you shall, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods. Really, the word is beside me. There's no other God besides me. Certainly no other gods to be esteemed before me. It's a call for monotheism. Mono means one, theism, the worship of God, that there is one God. <clears throat> Think about them living in Egypt. Remember how they got there? Remember, 430 years was how long they lived in Egypt. They had sold, the, the sons of Jacob had sold their brother into slavery. Joseph, the one with the coat of many colors, he ends up in Egypt. He ends up being in power in Egypt. And then they begin to multiply. Remember the precious midwives in Exodus chapter 1. And the Israelites began to multiply. And there they were. And what did the Egyptians do? The Egyptians put them to work. They brought them under their thumb. They worked them. They, they beat them down. They kept them in control because they were becoming such a powerful people. And the Egyptians worried that if the Israelites, living as aliens in their land, that if an enemy neighbor came and attacked Egypt, that the Israelites might join in to overthrow Egypt. And so for 430 years, they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt. And then God raised up Moses, remember? 
Moses with his staff, Moses with his brother Aaron, Moses who said he couldn't speak, and he confronts Pharaoh. And do you remember what God did to convince Pharaoh to let his people go out of Egypt so that they could go and trek to the promised land? Remember how many plagues? The number is 10. If you have to guess a number this morning, guess 10. All right? 10 words, 10 plagues. Remember those 10 plagues. Remember the the crazy things that happened. Turning the river Nile to blood. Frogs coming up and being everywhere, even getting in their baking dough so that when they baked bread and then they went and sliced open bread, there would be a frog in their bread. Frogs everywhere. Lice, the dust of the earth turned to lice. One plague after another, their cattle died. They got boils that broke out on their skin. Hail fell from the sky, large hail. Locusts came and ate up all the crops. Darkness covered the land. And then finally and ultimately in that horrific picture of death, the death angel comes and those without the blood of the lamb on their doorposts lost the firstborn of every living creature in their household. Their firstborn dog, their firstborn calf, their firstborn son. Dead if they weren't covered with the blood. Those ten plagues, what you need to know, what makes it so interesting when God calls on on Israel, say, I am your God, I'm going to speak to you. You need to know that I am one God. It's a monotheistic system. Think about the fact that for 430 years, the Israelites had been living in Egypt that was polytheistic. Poly means many, theism, God. Polytheism, many gods. And so all Israel knew was living in a neighborhood filled with false gods, living, living in the context of a country where they watched people worship all these different gods. They, wor- they, they watched them observe their feast days. They watched them have their parades. They watched them have their holy days, all in association with m- a multitude of false gods. What you need to know that makes this so contextually important and culturally contextually important is that though the, the Israelites have been living in Egypt where there's a polytheistic system, now they're leaving for 430 years, that's all they know. When God pulled them out and he, and he poured out these plagues on Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, do you realize that every single one of the plagues was a poke in the eye of an Egyptian god that they worshipped? So every one of the plagues, and the Israelites would have completely understood this. For example, the great river Nile flows through Egypt. It was their source of life, their source of water for their crops. It was the heartbeat of their economy. It was what sustained them. It was what made them a strong country. And the very first plague, for example, turned the Nile River into blood. What you need to know is that, that the Egyptians worshipped a god named Knum, who was considered to be the guardian of the source of the Nile River. The Nile River was so important that they prayed to a god that they made up named Knun, who guarded the source of the river so that the river would always be there. Then God turns it into blood. They had a god named Happy, H-A-P-I, And that God was the spirit of the Nile. They prayed to this God who was the spirit of the Nile. Happy God, H-A-P-I. I I don't know if he was happy or not. And then a God that you might have heard of before, Osiris. You've probably heard of Osiris. The Egyptians believed in this God named Osiris, and they believed that the Nile was his very bloodstream. 
So God, playing with these gods, the one true monotheistic God of Israel, playing with the make-believe polytheistic gods of Egypt, uses the plagues to poke them in the eye and to show them that their gods are absolutely powerless. But he now has a lesson to teach his own children because he's worried about their hearts and their minds. He's worried about the, the influence of the people among whom they've been living for all of these years. All they know is a people of polytheism. And when he gets them on his own and when he gets them on the trail to the promised land, to Canaan, he wants them to understand. You need to know that the gods of Egypt are false gods. You need to know that I am your God and that I am one God. Now, the Bible, in that amazing, mysterious way, almost teaches, though we have one God, he's only one God, he reveals himself in the form of three persons. Isn't that amazing? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's difficult for us to grasp, but the Bible teaches a, a triunity very clearly. We worship one God who is a triune God in the form of three persons. Not multiple gods, but one God. This is, this is in some ways maybe to the children of Israel, to the younger children of the children of Israel, new teaching. They've been observing the country around them. And so it's culturally important. For God to make clear to them, there are not many gods, there's only one God. And then think about where they're going. Not only have they come out of Egypt, where they've lived for all these years among the polytheists, but they're going to Canaan, they're going to this land that they're going to be given by God from the promise, covenantal promise given to Abraham many years before. It's only an 11-day journey or so from Egypt to the Promised Land. Because of their sinfulness and stubbornness of heart, it's going to take them how many years? 40 years to get there. They're going to wander in the wilderness for the whole entire older generation to die off before they let the young be. Moses himself, who's leading them, is not going to be able to enter the Promised Land. But think about the cultural context of this first word of the Decalogue. I am one God, you're to, you're to have no other gods besides me, because not only are they leaving polytheism, but they're entering a whole new neighborhood of Canaan that is polytheistic. They're going to be introduced to their neighbor's gods here, and what are their names? Molech? He's the one that they sizzled babies on fire and offered their ch in child sacrifice. You have the Baals and the Ashtaraz. And what did God's people do? Did they remember this commandment? Time and time again, they cycled through times in their lives where they gave in and they yielded and they took on the look of their neighbors. We don't like to look different than our neighbors, do we? And so the very first thing that God says is, you're my people, I am your God, there is no other God, and you're not going to look like the people from where you've come, and you're not going to look like the people where you're going. You're my people, and there's one God. And there you have the cultural relevance of this first word. I want to ask you something. Is this not as relevant as today's newspaper? We live in a world that is filled with false gods, both of our own making and of other religions. We'll talk more about some of those in the future. But we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our creator, only one God. It's as culturally relevant today as it was the day that he called them out of Egypt and then warned them with this first word that where you're going, there's going to be other gods, other influences. Do not worship those. I will not tolerate it. God is not kidding.
The second statement in the second commandment is somewhat related and they fit together in that he says in verse 4, And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You know, don't you get the pictures in your imagination right away of all these grotesque statues and gods and idols that people carve? So what we have is one God, not many gods. He says, I do not want you to take wood or stone or anything and form it to look like a bird or look like an animal or look like a fish. Do not carve out these images. And we can all picture idols and images of what people put together and they'll put a shelf in their home and they'll set it on a shelf. And in some cultures, they'll bring food and even offer food daily to their idol and the food just sits there and dries up. The idol can't eat. It was just a stone. It was a representation. They wanted to represent their God. But we have a God who is an invisible God who wants to remain invisible, but he wants to be very audible. He wants to be heard, but he does not want to be seen. The second thing I want you to see is that that God has a word and is making a statement of personal intolerance. Not only is he making a statement that is culturally relevant of cultural relevance, but he's making a statement of personal intolerance. And yes, I said that God is an intolerant God. A lot of people don't like that kind of God. Everybody wants this loving God who accepts everything and everybody. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is not the God who wrote the Ten Commandments. In fact, the most loving thing that God could do is to keep us from our own stupid sinfulness by telling us things not to do. That's not good for you. It's not true. It's not going to do you any good. Leave it alone. In fact, I'm not kidding and I will not tolerate it. And God says, do not make for yourself a carved image of anything. Anything that is in heaven above and the earth beneath and the water under you, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So number one, God says... This is a statement of personal intolerance towards any other God, the first commandment. I alone am God. And secondly, it's a no to images. No images. Well, let's illustrate this in maybe a practical way. Let's go, let's go to the young couple's new apartment. They've just been married, by the way. And they're very in love. Very in love. They have their first new job Things are going very well. They've had the blessing of their parents. They've been in love. The wedding's over. Honeymoon's over. They started their new job. And, and he got home from work a little bit early one afternoon. And uh, he decided to fix up the house a little bit. And his wife has her new teaching job. And she got home from teaching. And he's so happy to see her. And they, they hug and they kiss in the kitchen still. And uh, they talk about what they're going to fix together for supper. And he's going to peel the potatoes. And they're going to talk while they peel potatoes. They've only been married three weeks, you know, and it's going very, very well. And and then she says, I'll be right back, honey, because I'm going to change clothes before we cook this nice supper together. And he says, that's great. He said, you'll notice I have some new decorations on the wall of our room. And she goes in the room to see what he's done. And lo and behold, his great idea was to go down to uh, the Photoshop and to blow up some pictures of his high school and his college girlfriends to have them matted and framed and to have them hung around their bedroom. 
And she says, honey, what are you doing? He says, what do you mean? She says, you got all the pictures of your old girlfriends around the bedroom. What is going on? You, and she's really upset. And now she doesn't even want to talk. They're not going to peel potatoes and talk together. Things are not going well. She is a, say it, she is a jealous wife. Oh, but he says, no, you don't understand. You're taking it all wrong. These are all reminders of my love for you. I just like to think of you in different ways. I like to think of you some days as a blonde. And some days I like to think of you as a brunette. And some days I like to think of you as a redhead. And, and I, it's all about my love for you. I'm just, re- they all represent you. They don't really re- represent other, they're all, how, how utter nonsense. Right? He's just an idiot. He's just lost his ever-loving mind. He's just ruined his marriage. I think that's a little bit what God's doing here. So look, I'm your God, and I don't want to be represented in any way. How would we ever represent accurately the God of the universe? How would we ever represent accurately at any level some kind of picture of God? And so God says, I'm staying invisible. I'm a very audible God. You better listen to me, but you don't get to see me. In fact, I am so holy, the Bible tells us, that if you looked at God, you would die. That's amazing, isn't it? And he does not want to be represented in any other way because anything that tried to represent him would be as inaccurate as holding up a picture of your former girlfriend and saying it's a picture of your wife. It totally misses the representation of who she is. It totally does not represent who she is. No matter what you call it, no matter what you say it means to you, no matter what you say it turns your heart and helps me worship, he says, no images, no representation. I am one God. And just like the wife was, you have one wife, you have no other wives in your life, you have no other pictures in this house. It's the way it is. He is a wholesomely, beautifully jealous God who longs for relationship with his children, who deserves that kind of loyalty because of who he is. And we have no business misrepresenting him in any, any other way. So God is making a statement of cultural relevance. The children of Israel are coming out of a polytheistic nation. They're entering a pagan, false God-worshipping nation. They're going to be pressed on all sides. And so he says, I want you to know there's only one God and you only worship one God and it's me. The other thing you don't do is you don't set up idols or places of worship that represent God or me, represent me. And, and you're going to a place where there's stone carved into gods that are called Molech and Baal and Ashtoreth poles up on high places where they go through all kinds of pagan rituals. And was this a needed word for Israel? We're going to go just a few more chapters and we have that incredible story where Moses is now back up on the mountain for a second time when he's with Joshua. And Joshua says to Moses, I hear the sound of war down in the camp. Remember Exodus chapter 33? I hear the sound of war going on in the camp, Moses. Moses said, that's not the sound of war. That's the sound of revelry, paganism. What happened? Moses left. He was gone for 40 days. The people didn't think he was coming back. I guess they thought that God consumed him and took him out. 
And so they convinced Aaron to take all their jewelry, their gold, their earrings, melt it together into a golden calf. Where did that idea come from? Egypt. It was one of the Egyptian gods. And so there they are with this golden calf dancing. It's notable that in almost all forms of idolatry, sexual immorality enters in as well. Romans chapter 1 is clear on this, that when you leave your loyal devotion to God, your heavenly Father, and you begin to worship other gods, and you begin to represent Him in other ways, that you give yourself away to all other kinds of sensual lust, and it And it's a downgrade in morality, sexually speaking as well. And there they are in the camp of Israel, not that long being told, I'm your God, do not represent me. And they form this gold calf. They're taking their clothes off. They're entering into orgies. They're dancing and they're saying that this gold calf brought them out of Egypt. And they're saying it kind of like the young the young husband saying that a picture of his old girlfriend represents his wife. This calf is who brought us out of Egypt. God is enraged. He tells Moses, step back. I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm done with them. And Moses, in a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, intercedes and says, I'll step in on behalf. Just kill me. Don't kill them. And then he does something that's just great. You think the ten plagues were a poke in the eye of those foreign gods, those fake false gods of Egypt? They could do nothing about it. Moses takes the gold calf, burns it into fire, makes it makes it brittle, grinds it up into powder, puts it in their water source, has them all drink it so that they are now passing as excrement their God. If you have such a great God, why are you watering them on the ground right now? And so he, he faces them, he shows them. This is a worthless God. What are you doing? Do not represent me. And that's what happens time and time again. And you'll notice that this is something that That we need to do regularly in our lives. Israel regularly strayed from their loyalty to one God and from misrepresenting him with images. Thinking about that at the very end of Joshua's life. Moses has lived and then Joshua lives. What did Joshua do? He gets up on a stump. He calls the people together. And he said, you need to decide today, Joshua chapter 24. You need to decide today who you're going to serve. If it's the gods of Baal, then serve the gods of Baal. But if it's the one true God who has brought you out of Egypt, then serve him today. As for me and my house, that's that great passage. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Listen, you need to understand that this is a personal, radical choice to remove other gods from your life. As for me and my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. So this is a statement of cultural relevance. It's a statement of personal intolerance by God. No other gods, no images, no misrepresentations. I am an invisible God who will remain audible but invisible. The final thing I want you to see today is that as God speaks and we listen, God is making a statement of generational consequence. He's making a statement of generational consequence. Let's go back to our text, Exodus chapter 20. Look what he says. You're not to... In verse 4, not to represent me about anything that is in the earth beneath or in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what does this mean? 
Now let's break this down by first of all looking at what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean. You might turn in your Bibles quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's only a, a little ways to your right in your Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 24. And let's look at some other passages and what the Bible teaches. Is God teaching here that if you're a father and you're a parent and you sin, and you turn away from God in any way and you sin, that your sin will be, will be judged in the lives of your children. And that is that because you sinned, your children is going to suffer. Your child is going to suffer and have to pay the penalty for your sin. Look what the Bible says. He's not saying that. The Bible says, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, when Moses is expanding upon the law of God, he says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. If you're taking notes, you've, you write down Deuteronomy 24, 16. It explains that everyone suffers for their own sin. You don't suffer for someone else's sin as far as the judicial consequence of sin, the penal consequence of sin before a holy God. You don't pay for someone else's sin. Everyone stands accountable for their own sin. Another passage you could write down is Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, note verse 4 and then 20 and on. It's a very interesting passage where, where God expands upon this subject, but it's summarized by this, this statement. In Ezekiel 18, 4, it says, The soul who sins shall surely die. He goes on to say in verse, eight, in verse 20 that a father does not suffer for the sins of his child and the child does not make the payment for the sins of the father. So what is God saying back in Exodus chapter 20? What's going on here in Exodus chapter 20 when he says, you shall not bow down or serve them. I'm the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. And I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, even to the third and fourth generation, if you don't follow after me. What's going on here? I think what he's talking about here is the blessing of obedience. And basically what you might think of as a curse on your family of disobedience. I don't necessarily mean a curse that has to be like a spell that has to be broken. But if you know what it is to have a godly grandfather or a godly father who has taught your family, has protected your family, has taught you to walk in the truth, then you know what it is to receive the blessing, generationally speaking, of what a godly family, a godly parents gave you. And what I think he's saying here is if you do not follow after me and you end up following after other gods, then your children will follow after gods. Or if you even open the door, what you as a parent open the door to, your children walk through, they enter and take it even to further extremes. And then your grandchildren don't even know the truth about God because you've failed to teach them. On a regular basis, I have people in my office for counseling, and especially if they're young adults. And they'll talk about how bad things were and all the things. And, and I didn't have my dad and I, all this and I didn't have this and I didn't have that. And sometimes I'll stop them and look at them and I'll say, listen to me. You might have a family chain of sin and a history of sin in your family, but somewhere along the line, somebody's got to break the chain. You stop it now. You walk in righteousness. You walk in obedience. And you begin to see the blessing of the obedience of the word of God in your life. And you pass that blessing on to your children. And you pass that blessing on to your grandchildren. Even to the third and fourth generation of those who fear him and walk with him. 
I don't know how often I am reminded in my own personal life how blessed I am because my father disciplined me. He counseled me in the word of God. He loved me. He directed me. He prayed for us. I am blessed because my father feared God and didn't sin. How many times do we see young men repeating the sins of their father over and over and over? And then their grandchildren. And by the time you get third and fourth generation, they don't even know who their father is. And they're lost souls. It's not talking about a son having to go to hell for the sin of their father. He's talking about a son who goes to hell because his father never taught him the truth. Because he never heard the truth and he never walks in the truth. And he he becomes a lid on God's blessing. And yet the opposite is true. He said, even to the third and fourth generation, and yet to thousands, I'll show my love. God is a God who wants to show his love. He wants to bless. It is often true, isn't it, that the sins of the father become the sins of the next generation. Sin can put a family into a downward spiral outside of the blessing of God, which results in repeated and generational sin cycles. Break the cycle. Walk in the truth. Follow after God with a whole heart. So God has spoken three words to us today through these first two commandments. He's making a statement that is of cultural relevance. It's in the context in which they live. God is making a statement of personal intolerance. I will not tolerate any other gods. I will not tolerate false images. And God is making a statement that has generational consequence to it. If you obey me and you follow after me and you don't worship other gods, I can bless your family. You will see it result in blessing. If you don't, it's a lid on the blessing of obedience. It removes the blessing of God. It's amazing how this first commandment creates context for us culturally, doesn't it? You think it's culturally relevant to worship one God and to know who the true God is right now and to not worship the creation? We worship the creator, not the creation. Listen, check your worldview. Check your view of God. If you worship the creation, you start to come up with really funny ideas. You come up with ideas that like a tree is a sacred thing and ought not to be cut down. You come up with ideas that that mountains and rocks are are valuable to the degree that we don't touch them. And you come up with the idea that the sky and the earth are somehow sacred. If you don't understand that there is one true God who created the earth and that he is our loving Heavenly Father and he's placed us as stewards of the earth, we don't worship the creation, we worship the creator. Therefore, we're good stewards and we take a tree, we don't worship it, we cut it down and build a nice home or a piece of furniture out of it. We take the earth and we drill in it and we get the oil out of the ground and we run our cars and we keep the clean air and we use good things. But we don't worship the earth. If you don't have this straight in your mind... You end up all over the place. And we live in the cultural context right now of a bazillion gods. And we live in a cultural context right now where the worship of the creation is huge. And their disregard for the creator is blatant. There is no God. You have evolved. The creation is what matters. Nothing could be further from the truth. How does this apply to New Testament Christians and New Testament believers? Let me quickly just um, comment on a couple things. When we turn to our New Testament, for example, in 1 John, the epistle of 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, do you know how he ends? 1 John 5, 21, you know how he ends his epistle? 
My little children, my little children, keep yourselves free from idols. He's writing to believers in the Lord Christ. He's writing to believers. And his caution is, keep yourselves free from idols. What kind of idols do we have in our lives? What are, what's suggested in the New Testament? What are we warned about in the New Testament that is based upon the first and second command in the Old Testament? Let me just quickly click them off. There's Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, for example, we're warned in verses 19 to 24 to lay up treasure in heaven, not on earth. That where your treasure is, there's where your heart will be. And you cannot serve God and money or mammon. You cannot serve the two. God says you have to serve me or others. Choose yourself this day. You're going to serve me, you're going to serve money. Do we have a culturally contextual issue with serving money in our country? Absolutely we do. Is that not a relevant word? How about Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. It's where Paul is warning about the pagan neighbors that the Philippian believers live in. And he says, he says they're apostates. And one of the things he says to describe them is that their belly is their God. Remember that phrase? Their God is their belly is how he puts it. What does that mean? That's not hard to understand. The thing that drives them, the thing that consumes their passion, the things that consumes their thought life are the things that satisfy their physical appetites. Whether it's the appetite for food, whether it's the appetite to feast the eyes or the ears, or whether it's the appetite to feast other parts of the body. Their God is their belly. It's, their, it's the core of their sensual being. What is it that drives you? What is it that you're devoted to? We have a New Testament warning against money, Matthew 6. We have a New Testament warning against the gods of the flesh and the drive of the flesh. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, Ephesians 5 as well. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says, Guard against covetousness, which is idolatry. If I had that bass boat, I'd be happy. If I had that house, I'd be happy. If I had those shoes right there, I'd really feel good next week. You're trusting things for your self-worth. You're trusting things for your feelings. God says, I'll be your all in all. God says, I am your heavenly father. I feed the birds of the air. I clothe the lilies of the field. I will take care of you. No other gods. Covetousness, which is idolatry. How about Jesus ultimately calling us to the exclusive claims of the gospel in the New Testament? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes unto the Father but by me. On what basis did Jesus have the authority to say that? Think about it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. That is an exclusive claim. Take away the first two commandments, and Jesus cannot make that claim. Because there might be other gods to whom you can follow but Jesus is God's representation in the flesh. He is the image of the, of the living God. You want to know what God looks like, then study Jesus. And Jesus could claim exclusivity because he was God in the flesh, because it's a monotheistic system. My friend, are you followers of Jesus Christ today, who is the representation of the one true God? I trust this challenges your thinking. God has spoken. He's making a statement that is so culturally relevant today.
He's making a statement about his own intolerance. He's making a statement about how to bless generations to come. He's reminding us that our hearts easily turn away to idolatry. The challenge is great, isn't it? To examine the priorities of our lives, to examine the value system of our homes. Who is it that we desire more than anyone else? Who is it that we look to for our strength? Who is it that satisfies? Is it God? Maybe you haven't even thought about that for a while. Maybe you're so filled with the drives of the flesh, the urgencies of the hour. I trust that God will give you a renewed perspective about your life. That you'll pay close attention. Father, we look to you for our strength today. Please make these teachings clear to us. Help us to understand how the reality of your oneness forces us to turn only to you as God. There are no other gods. There is no other God. It is only you. Father, forgive us for all the ways we go chasing after other things to satisfy our souls when only you can satisfy. Father, I pray for the heads of households here today who are seeking to influence the next generation for righteousness, and I pray that you'll pour out your blessing on them as heads of households here today point their young people to the one true God, that they will see the blessing transferred generationally. Father, bring conviction to us if there are gods of our own making that we're chasing after, and money and things and sensuality, inordinate pleasure that consume us and fill our minds would you please just renew yourself to us, refresh us and encourage us in our own relationship with you, that we would love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things and pray. Amen.